I'm glad you can join us for this class on science, religion, and health care. And there's nothing more embarrassing than falling asleep on a Friday afternoon, particularly if you're the speaker in a conference like this. So I'm going to go rather quickly, get through a lot of material, then hopefully we'll have time for questions and answers. If I don't get your question, this is my email address. You can feel free to email me and mention GMHC Conference, and I'll be happy to get back with you. Also, what I'm going to do is pass out name tags that will uh, – I'll do this afterwards. I have some name tags. Actually, would you pass this out on this side? And then if uh, hand that to those people on the other side. If you have questions on this, feel free to get back with me. Let's get started here. First of all, anybody who writes a book, produces a movie, does a breakout session, has an agenda. You know that. We're all biased. Everybody has presuppositions. This is such an important topic, science, religion, and healthcare. I'm going to tell you up front what my presuppositions are, what my bias is. Now, in this group, most of you will agree with me on most of these items, but many times when you hear this discussed, you won't. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly dividing the word of truth. We believe that there is objective truth. We don't manufacture truth. We don't invent truth. Truth is revealed. It's subjective. We reject scientism. Now, scientism is a name that's given to the idea where you take investigatory methods that are used in natural science and you imply, apply them to all fields of inquiry. And in scientism, science is the most authoritative and is superior to all other worldviews. Well, now, I reject that. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about good science. We're going to embrace good science, reject bad science. Now, science, when you hear the word science used, much of the time science is used synonymously with naturalism. Naturalism is an idea that there's never been supernatural events. There are none now and there never will be. So much of today's science is equated with naturalism. Faith goes beyond reason. It does not go against reason. Good faith goes beyond good medicine. It does not go against good medicine. Basic things that much of the time we would agree with, but not everybody assumes that. And then lastly, look at these verses. Some you can't see these in the back. Ephesians 6.12 and Galatians 6.7. Galatians 6.12. Who knows how that verse starts? Any of you know Galatians 6.12? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, power, the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. One book before, so Paul's talking about the supernatural world that we live in. One book before that in Galatians 6, 7, he says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He's talking about the natural world, a reaping and sowing. You plant the seed of corn, you get corn, not something else. So oftentimes in our Christian lives, we either gravitate to a worldview that's all supernatural and everything that happens is of God. God told me this. God did that. Or we deny that reality and we live totally in the natural world. Neither of those streams is correct. Religious beliefs of patients have traditionally been considered off limits due to these reasons. Too personal, irrelevant to health, 
neurotic, or conflicting with proper medical care. In 1994, an essay was entitled The Anti-Tenure Factor in Religious Research. This topic, when we look at science and look at religion or look at medicine and faith, these are two great disciplines. When we look at how these interface, and they do interface, they don't intersect. One does not overshadow the other. They do not become amalgamated together. They're two parallel tracks like tracks on a rail, on a train rail. They're two important considerations. One way of looking at that, blessed are the ignorant, for they need not ever climb the learning curve. This is not, this is not intuitively obvious. You, are, you will not stumble onto this. You need to sit down and be deliberate and think through what the Bible says and what science teaches to come up with this appropriate interface. Now, here's a statement called cultural competence is necessary for the effective practice of medicine and religion and spirituality are important aspects of culture. There is no medical school of the 141 medical schools in North America. There is no medical school that disagrees with this. There's no state medical board that disagrees with this. Cultural competency involves a sensitivity towards religious aspects, and we're going to talk about those. Why is there interest in this religion, spirituality now? Well, the landscape is changing. There's an increasing number of research studies and published articles on this issue. And thirdly, patients want us to be sensitive to their spiritual needs. The landscape is changing. Patients say we have forgotten about compassion. Compassionate, competent care addresses suffering at all levels, not just the physical level. There is significant disillusionment due to the high cost, the impersonal nature, and the number of medical mistakes, the complications, side effects of drugs, and the routinization of health care the way it's delivered currently in, in America. These are some of the studies. Notice at the top 1980s, there weren't too many by 2005. Over 1,500 by now, even more. So this is being studied and published in the literature. Here's an example of a journal called Science and Theology News, where they try to take this interface between faith and medicine, science, and religion and bring it together. This particular journal is on our natural network, the complex world of emergence. This have, has nothing to do with the emergent church. There's an idea in science called emergence. If we, if we have time, we'll talk about this. It attempts to bridge the gap that exists between two extremes, reductionism on one side and vitalism on the other, reductionism, vitalism. So we'll talk about that if we have time later. Now, not only are academic people studying this, but patients are reading journals and studying it. So the patient interest in religious and spiritual issues. Polls and research show that many patients have a significant interest in religion and spirituality. This is a journal that, that some of your patients may look at called Spirituality and Health. This is not on that referenced reading list. It talks about the serious case for astrology, tapping the power of your ancestors. But people are reading this, and spirituality and leprosy and, re, and religiosity, these two terms don't mean the same to everybody. The history. We revere Hippocrates. Hippocrates was a great man. He gave us an ethics and an oath. He was pro-life. He was against abortion. He was against euthanasia. But he was very unscientific in his thinking. He believed in these four humors of health, which have been proven to be totally false. 
So he gives us an ethic, but not a science. The science did not come until the scientific revolution. The key is there was a shift from speculation to experimentation. So we move from dogma to investigation. And that's the beginning of the scientific revolution. There have been many men who have contributed to that. Francis Bacon, Newton, Kepler, Boyle, Faraday, Maxwell, and Pasteur, Galilei, Da Vinci, Pascal, Rudolph, left supraclavicular lymph node Verkau. <laughs> Some of you are still awake. Good. These men shared something in common. They believed the Bible was the word of God. And most of them, and particularly Francis Bacon, took their mandate to investigate scientifically from Genesis 1.28, where it says, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, and subdue it and have dominion over it. Subdue it and have dominion over it. So these men, particularly Bacon, believing that the Bible was the word of God, found in that the mandate to begin the scientific revolution, the scientific way of studying. Now, this relationship of science and religion, at the beginning of the scientific revolution, they were more closely related. The mind-body-spirit model was a healing concept that had not been segregated into mind or body or spirit like it has been up until today. First hospitals were founded by religious groups, and the first nurses' training programs were in churches. All truth is revealed by God. God's word is found in the Old Testament and New Testament, is what we call theology. God's work, as found in nature, is what we call science, dominion, what is found in Genesis 1.28, having dominion over the earth. And here's what's interesting for us as scientists, as medical scientists, and as Christians. Both of these require taking data and information and moving accurately to an interpretation and an application. And I'll show you more what that means, but this is key. Data may be data, and you can't argue with the data, but someone always has to take that data, interpret the data, and apply the data. When properly done, science and religion will be fully compatible and totally non-contradictory. Now, this is a scheme I've come up with that shows you God, the revealer of truth. So if truth is objective and real, revealed to us, God's word and God's work. God's word is special revelation, God's work is general revelation. Special revelation actually includes the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus, the apostles. Today we think of it as the Bible, that special revelation. It has to be interpreted and applied. Theologians use things such as hermeneutics and exegesis and looking at different genre of books. They interpret and apply. They come up with different ideas. Hence, we have different denominations, different groups. Now, over in God's work, God's general revelation, scientific information has to be taken, interpreted, and applied. The reason there is so much disagreement in medicine over different issues and the way it's taught in medical school is more black and white. You learn facts and you repeat them back for a grade on a test. In the real world of medicine, it is not that black and white. It is very gray because people take data and interpret it and apply it differently. But that is the scientific model. There have been many reasons why that has kind of separated over the years. It's coming back together again, fortunately, and that's why more and more people are discussing this issue. Now, we're only going to take time to look at the first and last bullet points here. 
This concept I'm presenting is not a postmodern way of thinking. This is very much a pre-enlightenment way of looking at things wherein truth is objective and reason is given by God in order to know truth. As time has gone on, we've gone through the enlightenment phase, post-enlightenment, now with postmodern. Many of the people you deal with, patients and peers, will not look at truth as being objective, but in this postmodern world, there is no objective truth. There's freedom, creativity, and self-actualization. Now, separation of religion and science. The church's undisputed authority was replaced. The experimental model did not apply to God, so God was left out of the equation. Rome and Galileo, the experience of Galileo before the Roman church contributed. The church lost its credibility. Religion is seen as irrelevant, and science loses its moral movings. The reconnection. So now we're seeing the reconnection of science and medicine. Patients want a more compassionate approach to their care. They want us to be empathetic. Doctors recognize that spiritual needs have not been fully evaluated. There's a desire for patient-centered model. And this reductionistic biomedical model has really failed to answer the problems. Reductionism is where you take complex life processes and you break them into very simplistic and mechanical and limited components. Even in the non-Christian or the secular medical community, people are realizing the reductionistic model fails to answer so many questions that now we're emerging into this emergence, sometimes called synergism, where in reductionism the sum is no more, or the whole is no more than the sum of the parts. That's reductionism. We move beyond that, and to get to the whole being greater than the sum of the parts, you have to either invoke this emergence theory, or as Christians, we look at the Bible. We've never embraced the reductionistic standpoint. The body has always been more than the sum of the parts. We've always been more than the chemicals and the enzymes and the organs. Now, in the studies I'm going to present to you, they're mostly done on the Christian population. Some people raise the question, why don't we study other denominations and other Christian or other non-Christian faiths? It's because the overwhelming number of Americans where we can do these studies are Christians. I want you to realize that religious groups apply to at least 2,100 different descriptive entities according to the Encyclopedia of American Religion. Notice ufology, flying saucers, neo-paganism, and we're going to talk a little bit about spiritualism. Now, here's an important concept between the difference between the two terms, religious and spiritual. Actually, spiritual is more a politically correct term to use. It's a more complementary term. Calling someone religious, particularly in academia, can be considered disparaging or somewhat caustic. It's not considered a politically correct term. But there are differences. Number one, Religion is more community-focused. The term spirituality is broader but implies more of a personal quest. Religion is observable and objective. Spirituality is subjective and less visible. Religion is more orthodox and organized, whereas spirituality is less formal and less systematic. Religion, more outward practices. Spirituality, inward. Religion, group accountability. Spirituality, little accountability. And religion doctrine of good versus evil, whereas in spirituality, it's more just unifying the concepts that you might believe in and that others might believe in. And then religion is doctrine-oriented more and with spirituality, not doctrine-related. 
Now, spirituality, as we've already mentioned, it's a more individualized concept compared to religion. It's a nebulous term, and sometimes it means things such as moral endorsement, reverence for nature, mere thoughtfulness, and appreciation for what lies beyond the material world. Whereas religion, when we talk about religion, religion is broken down into two orientations, intrinsically religious and extrinsically religious. This was a concept developed in the 1950s by Gordon Allport, the Harvard psychologist. And it's interesting, when he looked into this, he found out that, indeed, religious people can be prejudiced. And religious people can have problems adjusting and coping. But when he broke them into the two groups, he found out that the group that had problems with prejudice and problems with coping and adjustment were the extrinsically religious. Another example that oftentimes we fail to realize, if you look at things like the Crusades in the Middle Ages and uh, the Salem Witch Trials in the history of America and the wars between Protestants and Catholics, we're talking about people who held to extrinsic religiosity. By and large, they were extrinsically religious, not intrinsically religious. Now, Here's the basic difference. Intrinsically religious. They find their master motivation in religion. They embrace the creed and follow it fully. They live their religion. Characteristic of them, I try hard to carry my religion over into all my other dealings in life. My religious beliefs are what really lie beyond my whole approach to life. Whereas people who are extrinsically religious, not intrinsically religious, They find religion useful in a variety of ways. It can provide security, sociability, status, self-justification, solace, and distraction from life at times. Embraced creed is lightly held. The creed may be selectively shaped to fit the primary needs of the individual. And these individuals turn to God but without turning away from self. And you can't spend too much time in the scripture without being brought to face-to-face with the claim that Jesus has on all of our lives that we be sold out fully to him and to God, not using God when we want him on Sunday mornings and we're in in troubled areas and back to the world's way of doing things the rest of the time. Now, let's look at spirituality. What does that term mean? It is kind of fuzzy. It can mean in the context of religion. So I would hope all of you are spiritual and religious. But let's now look at those who are not both religious and spiritual. There are many people who consider themselves spiritual but not religious. There's something called vitalism, which is this invisible, non-material life force that exists out there somewhere and emanates into and gives life to to all living substances. Spirituality can be used to refer to invading the supernatural, And it can also be the extension of the non-local individual consciousness into time and space. This was advanced by Larry Dossie, an internist in Dallas, who's written a lot of books on holism. So this first one, spiritual but not religious. They have a sense of unmoored spirituality. Harmonial piety would be a good descriptor for them. Spiritual composure, physical health, and even economic well-being are understood to flow from a person's rapport with the cosmos. So this is a connection between an individual and the cosmos. Interestingly, about 20% of Americans will self-identify with this, spiritual but not religious. 
Now, another aspect of spirituality that is very important is this concept of vitalism, spiritual energy, the cosmic or universal life force that gives life and health. This permeates not all of alternative medicine, but much of alternative medicine involves this concept of vitalism. In traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture, the, the energy field that's being manipulated is qi. In Japanese Reiki, it's qi. In Ayurvedic medicine, advanced by Deepak Chopra, it's prana. In holistic chiropractic, it's innate intelligence. I'm making a difference between chiropractors who manipulate the back and stop there as opposed to those who branch out into holism and treat the whole body and treat all diseases based upon this innate intelligence. A chiropractor who left chiropractic and went and formed this entity called applied kinesiology was a George Goodhart. And in this way of thinking, this chi is reflected in the muscles. Another chiropractor that I can think of that formed another way of thinking like this was Bernard Jensen, who is a widely acclaimed iridologist who would claim that he could look at the iris and diagnose all manners of illnesses merely by looking at the iris. Homeopathy has a vital force, therapeutic touch, energy fields. Therapeutic touch was advanced in the 70s by Dolores Krieger and Dora Kuntz. Dora Kuntz was a psychic healer. They came together and formed this model where they would take their hands and balance this distorted energy, and it's distorted energy that is presumed in this model to be the source of illness. So by employing therapeutic touch and changing this cosmic energy, disease can be changed to wellness. Reflexology involves these energy channels. There are reflex pathways, according to this line of thinking, from the bottom of the foot that goes to all the various organs, and you're balancing this energy. Folk herbalism. So many of these alternative medicine ideas involve this spiritual energy uh, form called vitalism. Now, many of our patients, many Americans, have gravitated away from traditional medicine to complementary alternative medicine, now referred to sometimes as integrated medicine, because they endorse the holism that goes along with alternative medicine. Many of us allopathic and osteopathic physicians have forgotten, if we ever knew, how to sit down with patients and sell ourselves to the patient by connecting with them. Many alternative medicine practitioners invoke this holism. I want you to realize it's different oftentimes in the holism the Bible talks about. Oftentimes that holism is called is spelled W-H-O-L. The holism Jesus talked about was the holism of the body, the spirit, the mind, and the whole body working together. When you hear this term, holism, it's kind of like hearing the word religion or spiritual. You have no idea what the con what means until you know the context or the presuppositions of the person who's using them. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over these rather rapidly, but traditional medicine has historically involved reductionism and materialism, and alternative medicine, vitalism, and relativism. So our patients have been torn between just, just naturally liking and embracing holism. What could be more American than holism? It's kind of like motherhood and an apple pie and the American flag. It just sounds so good, holism. And that's why many of our patients gravitate towards that. But many of them are shrewd enough to realize that science or genuine evidence-based medicine is legitimate. So they're, they're, they're torn sometimes between these two, not realizing that both models have other parts to them. 
Now, what is evidence-based medicine? We hear this term and we use it a lot. I want you to see this definition. It's where we de-emphasize unsystematic clinical observations, we de-emphasize pathophysiological inferences, and we decrease emphasis on authority and intuition. That's part of what the scientific method was, wasn't it? It was moving from dogma to investigation, from speculation to experimentation. We're advancing that now by by de-emphasizing authority and intuition. Pathophysiological inference. Much of the much of the dietary and supplement industry is based upon the inference that because there are free radicals in the body and because free radicals are bad and because antioxidants help, therefore antioxidants are good. That's an inference. Now, I, we don't have time to discuss that other than for me to say in 1994, Congress enacted a law called DSHEA, D-S-H-E-A, Dietary Supplement Health Education Act. And companies now can manufacture anything they want and market it any way they want as long as they don't say this is intended to diagnose, cure, or treat a medical illness. They can make claims about general health and put together any product, and there's no oversight unless there's complaints or a problem. And much of that, that's a very good example of pathophysiological inference. Now, what do we emphasize in evidence-based medicine? We emphasize critical appraisal of the study methods to determine which study is better than another. Out of context, just like scripture out of context is very dangerous, out of context you can take a scientific medical article and prove just about anything you want. And I know that because patients have come to me with articles thinking they've proven something. I practiced as a general internist for over 20 years, and I started to collect, and I wish I'd finished collecting all the articles and all the products and all the claims that people brought into me. I started to, to collect that, and it gets so voluminous that I threw it out. But it's amazing what's published as science. What It's the amazing sales that's presented. Diagnose, amazing how much sales masquerades as science. So here's where we are in spirituality. We've talked about context as being spiritual and religious, People who are non-religious, that is, they're spiritual but not religious, 20% of Americans. Vitalism that affects much of but not all of alternative medicine. And invading the supernatural, accessing the supernatural realm with spiritual technology to manipulate it, spiritualism or medical sensitive. A good example of this recently is someone named John Edwards. Some of you have perhaps are familiar with him. He's done a television show called Crossing Over. John Edward, not to be confused with John Edwards, former Democratic presidential wannabe, John Edwards, John Edward, Jonathan Edwards, theologian, minister, early 1700s. So you have to keep your John Edwards straight. Invading the supernatural, attempting to assess and manipulate supernatural realm through spiritual technology. Spiritualism and spiritism are synonymous. It means using a medium and trying to get in touch with spirits from the dead. Bible obviously talks about that. Spiritualism, a belief that spirits of the dead communicate with the living, usually through a medium. Now, let me address this because if, if you read on this topic, you're going to hear about authors and, uh, who use the term prayer. Prayer is another word that, taken out of context, you have no idea what someone is talking about. Most of us, when we think of prayer, we think of prayer mediated through God. 
Many people use the word use the word prayer to mean psychic healing or psychic extension. In fact, Larry Dossey, who's written Healing Words, The Power of Prayer, has this to say about prayer. What he's talking about, absent healing or psychic healing, is far different from the old biblically-based views of prayer, which are now antiquated and incomplete and are uniquely pathological mythology. Many Christians will hear this and perhaps even get the book and and skim through it and think that he's talking about prayer the way they're thinking about prayer. That is a big mistake. In Dossie's model, prayer is the extension of the non-local consciousness. So the mind or the consciousness can be extended out into time and space and actually affect matter. So we know gravity can affect matter, but most of you don't think through, can our thoughts actually affect events? Uh, I don't believe so, but there are people who believe that our thoughts, and that's how they look at prayer as being effective, because if our thoughts can affect things at a distance, it's not being mediated through God, Yahweh, Jehovah. It's just merely another characteristic of our thinking. Parapsychology, psychokinesis, abbreviated PK, is a general term that means anomalous perturbation of distant events. Telekinesis is moving of distant objects. And psychokinesis may be an example of a belief where as as humans we oftentimes see patterns where there are no patterns. That's been studied, and as humans we have a tendency to do that. And many people who are so convinced that psychokinesis works, they have an idea in mind, they see patterns where patterns don't exist. There's something called noetics. I think I'm going to skip that to move on. Let's look at this. Look why, say nothing, and grunt. <laughs> who are you? I'm going to present some studies. I know you know who you are. I'm presenting a study here. I did a questionnaire, a survey, at a large Midwestern hospital in the Midwest in Columbus, Ohio. This is a 1,000-bed hospital, 1,300 people on the medical staff, physicians were getting CME for this. So it was a conference where physicians received CME, but because we were doing a Compassion in Medicine Award to to another physician, and I was speaking. So the topic would bring in some people like chaplains and chaplaincy trainees and nurses and social workers. So I'm going to show you some numbers, but I want you to pay most attention to the way the physicians responded because they're more of a cross-section. It's the physicians who are there every week for CME. It includes physicians, retired practicing residents, and medical students. And I asked them the question, do you believe in God? And here is the answer. So we're just going to look at the physicians. 77% answered that yes. 6% no, 17% neutral. So remember, 77% of physicians answer the question, do you believe in God? Next, I asked the question, do you pray on a regular basis? And I did not define what I meant by prayer, and I didn't define regular basis. Physicians, 59%. Now, that surprises me from the talk I hear in elevators and hallways and with what I hear from physicians. It surprised me that 59% of the people I work with on a regular basis pray on a regular basis. 41% said no. And then I asked this next question, do you believe in an afterlife? 
And interestingly, 73%, so that's consistent. At 77% believe in God, it's consistent that 73% would also believe in an afterlife. 27% said no. And then I asked the question, I presented some further information that I haven't done here, but I asked them the question, what's the primary reason in your mind for faith and medicine, science and religion to come closer together? In other words, I made the case that they're estranged and that science and religion, faith and medicine, we don't work together. For those who thought the primary reason to come closer that they were in agreement with, with that, most of them put down, the majority said, the important role of, of religion and spiritual dimension in their own life. So that would be consistent. Many of them have most likely been born again and they've seen change in their own life. But then I asked this next question. What's the primary reason that you think religion and science and faith and medicine should stay distant like they have been? Now, I can understand, number one, people saying, well, the evidence is there, but it's just not robust enough. But this surprises me. Most of them said it's too personal to inquire about religious beliefs and it's unprofessional to do so. We ask people about the deep, dark secrets of their sex life that they tell nobody else about. And we can't say to them, do you have a faith structure that might help in this illness? Is there something spiritually that, that I need to know about? This does not have to be opening Pandora's box. This does not have to be a question that's going to stop you in your tracks for the next 20 minutes. Many physicians, now this was, this was four years ago, and many of these physicians are older than most of you, but I hope you don't think that it's too personal or unprofessional. There is no medical school that says that it's unprofessional to inquire about something as important as religion and spirituality. There are appropriate ways and inappropriate ways to go about it. We'll talk about some of those. Now, here's another survey. This is a survey done by Princeton. Do you believe in God? So across the country, 95% of Americans will answer the question they believe in God. So physicians at the hospital I was at, 77%. This is 95 Physicians prayed, actually, 59% in the what I study, 57% here. Here's another study. Do you believe in God? 96%. Do you believe in heaven? 90%. Do you believe in miracles? 79% of Americans believe in miracles. Do you believe in hell? 73%. The devil, 65 Another study, CBS, do you believe in God? 82%. Do you pray often? 59%. Journal of Family Practice, 77% of patients said physicians should consider their spiritual needs. But 68% of patients said their physicians never discussed religious beliefs. Archives of internal medicine, 90% of patients believe that prayer may sometimes influence recovery. 90% of patients believe that prayer may sometimes influence recovery. What can we conclude? Clearly we can conclude that many patients are religious and they turn to religion for comfort, for support, and hope. Now, from the archives of internal medicine... 85% of physicians felt they should be aware of patients' spirituality, but most would not ask about spiritual issues. Fewer than 33% would pray with patients even if they were dying. That's if the patients were dying. I don't know what if the physicians were dying. <laughs> Family physicians were more likely to take a spiritual history than internists. I'm not sure why, but family physicians seem to be doing a little bit better. Now, another article... 
76% of physicians believe in God. The, the survey I did with 200 people, 77% of them. So I think there's evidence that physicians across the board, probably in the high 70s, believe in God. And in this study, only 59% believe in an afterlife. Actually, I like my study a little bit better. In the group I surveyed, 73% of them believe in an afterlife. Now, this is a composite that I made up. So right from the start, I will tell you, these are ballpark figures. So I got one number from one journal, another number from another study, but it's a ballpark figure. 93% of the general population believes in God. As we go down the line, social workers, 91%, family marriage therapists, 87%, physicians, 76 psychologists, 70%. Psychiatrists, 60%. Now, psychiatrists are a strange group of people. I, I mean that in that they're strange in that some of the studies show that it's high and some studies show that their belief in God is low. So I just took a median there of 60%. But here's what's so important. Biologists, physicists, and mathematicians, it's only 40% believe in God. The elite National Academy of Science members, 7%. So isn't this interesting? There's a reciprocal here. 93% of the general population, 7% of elite National Academy of Science members. These are the people who work the NIH, who get grant money, who determine how education in America is done. And unless you're going to position yourself so that your practice is elite National Academy of Science members, you have to assume that the vast majority of your patients will believe in God. You know, when I first started practice, I thought, unless it was specifically a Christian patient from my church, I thought the chance of this patient believing in God is probably remote, so I won't even assume that he may be interested in anything spiritual. But 93% of the population say they believe in God. Now, we talked a little bit about this, naturalism. I'm going to skip over this to get to something else. Naturalism, the cosmos, is all that is, ever was, or ever will be. That was Carl Sagan. Now, let's look at the link between religion and mental health. So if there's evidence that faith, this faith factor is important in the healthcare equation, what is the evidence? Much of it has to do with mental health. This is a list of studies where the percentage that came back positive is the numerator, but it's not that, let's look at depression. It doesn't mean that out of 93 studies, 60 were positive and 33 were negative. In this particular study, only four were negative and the rest were either neutral or mixed. But basically, you can see that when you look at all these assessments, well-being, hope, and optimism, looking at people who are religious versus non-religious, it's positive for all of these factors, purpose and meaning in life, depression and recovery, suicide, anxiety and fear, marital satisfaction and stability and social support. This is from Koenig's book on religion and health. How does religion impact coping? Well, it gives us a positive, optimistic worldview. For those of us who believe in a Savior and the eventual redemption of this entire world and living in heaven with God, if that's not a reason for optimism, there is none. So people who believe in God are optimistic. They have meaning and purpose, hope and motivation. There's a sense of personal empowerment, sense of control, role models for suffering. We look at Jesus and his suffering, and we look at the apostles. Guidance for decision-making, answers to ultimate questions, and social support. So all these factors weigh into how 
religion helps with mental health. Better mental health is related to better physical health. There have been countless studies showing that this relationship exists. A JAMA article looking at depressive symptoms impact health-related quality of life more than biological factors such as cardiac ejection. I bet you haven't heard your cardiologist mention that study. Here's another one in Lancet. 817 patients, 12 years of follow-up. Depressed patients had not 5% or 10% more mortality. They had 100% more mortality. So better mental health is related to better physical health. I'm going to skip through some of these to get to um, some other things. Let's look at this. So how is religion related to better physical health? We can look at all these factors and study immune endocrine function, shows better with religion versus non-religious people, lower mortality from cancer, lower blood pressure, less heart disease, lower cholesterol, less cigarette smoking, lower mortality, and lower clergy mortality. Now, how might this work? So here's a little diagram. And what this does, it's going to look at all the natural, the possible potential natural mechanisms. So you might say, well, isn't it rather irreverent to remove God from the equation? Well, we're looking at this from the scientific standpoint. So we're only removing God from this from the standpoint of let's try to identify what the natural aspects could be. In addition to that, we know that God does, can, and will answer prayer. We know that God has, is, and will be involved in divine healing. But let's just look at the natural mechanisms. When religion is involved, it affects three things primarily, mental health, social support, and health behaviors. Now, it does not necessarily have to be just a evangelical Christian group. Many religious groups provide this for their members. Mental health we've talked about. Now, actually, there should be a line going from that circle to this circle, from mental health to immune system. I'll give you the initials. Someone yell out what it stands for. PNI. PNI. What is PNI? What is PNI? Something, a new investigation in the human body that explains how our mental health in general affects the immune system. Immune system. PNI. Psychoneuroimmunology. Psychoneuroimmunology is a new field in medicine that's looking at how mental health affects primarily the immune system but we know it affects other systems, as does social support and health behaviors. Relationship or correlation. When we use the word relationship correlation, it can mean either an association or it can mean causation. The dilemma we face as physicians is this. We often are forced to make decisions early on before we know for certain whether or not we're dealing with just suggestive evidence or proof. There's a big difference between something where there's suggestive evidence versus conclusive evidence. And so many patients will come to you with an article that shows suggestive evidence, and it truly is genuine suggestive evidence, but that's its problem. It's truly, genuinely just suggestive evidence. Here's the big question. When there's a relationship between something, is it or the question with religion, is it causal or just association? Post hoc fallacy, after this, therefore because of this. Most overused and insincere words? No, it's not, I love you, have a good day, here it is. Scientific research shows, if you pay attention to how often you hear someone use these three words, either in a white coat selling you something on Christian radio and TV on Saturday morning, 
selling you a health and vitamin product, scientific research shows. Now, in the few minutes we have left, I know you had that big cookie for lunch. Stand up. Everybody stand up. Turn around one time and sit down. Stand up. Turn around and sit down. I need your attention. Good. All right, I need your attention. I do that because I like it when people tell me when they're going to say something important. I'm going to say something important now. I want you to hear this. There's a hierarchy of reliability in scientific studies. And it's not just patients don't realize. It's amazing me how many doctors have forgotten this. There is a hierarchy of reliability. Down here at the bottom, as far as the weakest evidence, is a single case report. This is called anecdotal evidence. Anecdotal evidence more often than not, is entertainment, not education. Now, when you're witnessing to someone about Christ, it's different. If you're sharing your story about how you came to be saved, you witness by presenting your personal testimony. That's an anecdotal story. In science, it doesn't work. In spiritual world, it works because all of us have inherited the same sinful nature from Adam. We don't all have the same genetic makeup, the same epigenes, the same environmental stresses. Our bodies are different. An anecdotal story would mean something to me if one of you were my clone and you told me what happened to you a few months ago. But in, in medicine, anecdotal evidence is the least reliable. But that's what so many of your patients hear on radio, TV, on health promotion. It may be suggestive of something, but it's not conclusive. We have to get up here to the top randomized clinical trials to show causality. Second best would be non-randomized controlled trial. And then as you go down to prospective, retrospective, cross-sectional studies, case series, they become weaker and weaker. Now, it is true that these studies on faith and medicine and religion and spirituality, they're not interventional. How would you ever go to a group of people like yourselves and I'd divide you down the room here and I'd say this half I want you to have religion in your life for the next six months. This half, no religion in your life or no prayer. Those studies cannot be done. It's like cigarette smoking. We do not have randomized clinical trials in cigarette smoking. It's unethical to do that. And we really can't do it on these faith and prayer and religion studies, but we have to use the next best, which are epidemiological studies, and that's what's been done. Now, there are opponents as well as proponents. I'm a great proponent of introducing faith into the equation. There are opponents. They have their reasons, but unfortunately, I'm not going to have time to go through that. I want to get to this. What does the research show? Most patients have a spiritual life. Most patients want their spiritual needs addressed. Most studies have found a direct relationship between religion and better health outcomes Supporting a patient's spirituality may enhance coping and recovery from illness. Now, what's recommended? Because religion influences coping with illness and medical decision, take a spiritual history. Realize that we can no longer justify the position that religion is usually irrelevant to health, neurotic, or damaging to health, but respect, value, and support the religious beliefs and practices of the patient. What can be done? Offer to pray with your patients. If you ever want to pray with you, please let me know is the question to ask the patients. That's not coercive. It's not unprofessional. There are no hospital rules against that. 
And we oftentimes to fail, we fail to orchestrate needs by working with the chaplains that are available to us. Uh, you should be familiar with some of the spiritual history models. If you forget them, you can always do this. You can always just ask the patient, are you at peace? And then you quit what you're doing and you look at the patient and you just wait. And as the patient thinks about that, they will answer that in a way that you will know where to go next. So oftentimes we can just take time, ask the patient if they're at peace. Do not force a spiritual history. Do not coerce a patient. Do not argue over religious matters. And do not impose personal values. Now, quickly I'm going to go through these prayer studies. There have been studies on supplemental intercessory prayer. There have been three major studies. I'm going to go right to the first one, 1988, 393 CCU patients. The bottom line is this. No difference in recovery time and hospital stay or death rate. When this was first published, there were some better outcomes for some predefined outcomes, but as far as recovery time and hospital stay, it was the same. In 1999, Harris did a study on 990 patients, no difference. Aviles in 2001 did a study. There was no difference between groups. But then in 2005, Mitch Krukoff did a study. It was published in The Lancet. He's been interviewed by Oprah. He's been on 2020, Dr. Oz. He did this big study called Monitoring Actualization of Noetic Training. He broke it down into several groups, but one group received prayer. There were other arms to it. But his results were this. No difference, no difference, and no difference. In 2006, Herb Benson at Harvard did a study called the Study of Therapeutic Effects of Intercessory Prayer. This was a well-funded study, over $2 million to do this. 3,295 patients, several groups. Again, no difference. Now, that might, might seem like a problem for those of us who believe in God, but if you know how these prayer studies were done, and, and I'm sorry they're even called prayer studies because of what I mentioned, they're not talking about prayer like you and I. Mitch Krukoff, when he did this mantra study, he had Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and Catholics and different denominations praying. Sometimes it was a scripted prayer, sometimes not. The reason we don't need to be apologetic on these prayer studies is they don't even begin to fit the criteria of what Jesus considered prayer. Nobody ever looked at the person who was praying. James 5:16 and John 14. Some of the other problems involved are these. Is the result presumed to be a function of number of prayers, the intensity of prayers, the prolongation of prayers? What are the scientific tools? We don't have tools that are calibrated for supernatural measurements. And truly, this is an example of testing God and manipulating God. Uh, there are some other theological concerns we're not going to get through. I apologize. Uh, the time has gone so quickly. I'm going to take just a couple minutes and point out this on God's intervention in our lives. God can intervene naturally or supernaturally. Naturally, he's done this. He does this in nature we're becoming medical scientists to deal with the way God has set up the natural laws. God also, from time to time, intervenes miraculously in a supernatural way, sometimes without human agency, sometimes with human agency. 
you will run across patients who fall into these groups. There's a health, wealth, and prosperity group that believes that by positive confession, we can invoke God's blessing of miraculous healing at will. There's a signs and wonders movement advanced by John Wimmer. John Wimmer, in his book, Healing, Power Healing, mentions that his, he confirms his belief that the gifts of healing in 1 Corinthians 12 exist today and that people should be invoking that, even the point of raising people from the dead. John Wimber is no longer living, so you're not going to confront that type, but you will confront people who look at healing and miracles different than you do. How do you deal with that? Here's the answer. Clinicians should be very cautious in trying to reframe the patient's belief in miracles during the healthcare encounter. Now, we have a dilemma as physicians because we need to delicately but very firmly approach that patient who has decided to quit using his life-saving insulin or quit using life-saving medicines because he's convinced he's been healed through faith healing. Faith healing, in my opinion, is science primary, it's theology secondary. It's primary medicine because you have to confirm that there's been a healing. So you need to convince your patient, if they believe in current gifts of healing and, and faith healing, that they need to throw out their insulin and their life-saving drugs after it's been proven that they've been healed. See, many people believe that they won't be healed because their faith is incomplete. If they don't convince God that their faith is full by throwing out their medicines, they, they won't be healed. So we have our hands full dealing with people who are God-fearing people who believe in God's intervention differently than, than many of us would. We are the ones that stand between them and success medically. You, the Christian healthcare provider, have a difficult responsibility, and that's we have to interface good science and a biblical worldview. For the believer, no further evidence is necessary. For the unbeliever, no further evidence is ever enough. Uh, let me pray for us, and we're going to close down here in just a minute. Father, I thank you for this opportunity. We'd ask that all of us here in this room would use our time and our training and our talents to bring glory to you. We'd pray, Father, that we would use our intellect, that we would be intentional about what we do as far as redeeming the time and using it wisely. We thank you, Father, for the abilities you've given us. Help us to be the instrument for bringing faith and medicine together for our patients in this very incredible and complex world. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Email me if you have questions. Subject, GMHC Conference. I'll promise to get back with you. Sorry we don't have time for questions. Goodbye and thank you.